Hi, and welcome to another episode of How Was It Really? The podcast from Sydney University History Department that pulls history apart to see how it works. I'm Nick Eckstein, historian in the History Department at Sydney University. As always, my co-host is Sophie Loy-Wilson, who is also a historian in the History Department at Sydney. Hi, Sophie. Hi, Nick. As you know, Sophie, uh, because we've been talking about this over the last week, I'm having difficulty containing my excitement for two reasons today. First of all, there's the topic we're going to be talking about, which is amazing. And then there's the guest we have who's responsible for it and who's going to be our guide. We'll introduce him shortly. But I'm going to keep everyone in suspense for just a bit longer. First of all, as we always do on How Was It Really?, we've got a question that we will set out to answer. So I'm going to throw to you, Sophie, to ask that question. What is it? It's an unusual one. We're going to be asking how close could prostitutes get to nuns in Renaissance Florence? See, we like to ask those questions out of context because it draws people in. We are literally going to talk about that, though. Indeed we are. But before we get to that, we need to introduce our guest. And it's a real pleasure to do so. As I was saying before, Sophie, you know how excited I've been over the last week that we're able to speak to this guest and that he's able to come to Australia. Professor Nick Terpstra of the Department of History at the University of Toronto is one of the world's foremost historians of early modern Italy, but not just Italy. In addition to a long string of important articles, he's published several landmark books that are required reading for historians of early modern European poor relief, religious communities, orphanages, and the like. Most recent in that vein is his prize-winning book, Cultures of Charity, published by Harvard Press in 2013. Since then, he's published an alternative history of the European Reformation titled Religious Refugees in the Early Modern World. Nick, welcome back to Sydney, welcome to the Department of History, and thank you for joining us on How Was It Really? Well, thanks very much, Nick, and thanks, Sophie. It's a real privilege to be here. As you know, Nick, we've invited you in to talk about your big digital database and mapping project called Decima. Before we do that, though, there's a question we ask all of our colleagues and fellow historians. Why did you become a historian? I became a historian, I suppose, in part because the Ontario government decided to hire me. But uh, before that, uh, I can go back to when I was about six years old or seven years old, and I remember reading history. And so for me, it's always been about narratives. And one of the narratives that I remember, one of the earliest memories I have uh, of, of reading this is um, being in the public library on a Saturday afternoon and reading uh, books about uh, British history and being struck uh, by two different accounts I read of King Canute. Mm. And one account was that he believed that if he had his throne in the water, the water should, would not come up to it. And uh, this was, in a sense, the, the interpretation that had the, the, the king as the all-powerful person. The second interpretation was the king being told by his advisors that this would happen, and he wanted to show them that it wouldn't. So you had two completely opposite views in, a child, in two different children's books, one a Tory interpretation, one a Whig interpretation. And I couldn't figure out why that was. So I think that's probably how it all started. That's really fascinating because having read, I think, all of your work, one of the things that, dis things that distinguishes it is that you adopt a narrative mode almost wherever possible. And that's often your way into material. And I think it's one of the things about your work that um, opens up possibilities so that one always has the feeling that one is not reading a final answer but an exploration into themes that explain more than than when you began reading. The, the model I think of for what historians uh, are and what historians do is conversation. 
and we, we, we speak to the past, we speak to the present, and we speak to our colleagues, and we speak to an audience. And so there's something that's always ongoing and un, incomplete or incomplete, uh, never finally tied up and finished, but always something that's ongoing. And you learn new things. And I think one of the things in a conversation is to make sure that the ideas you have are expressed clearly to to a body of listeners. And so I think the narrative the narrative approach is something that's always been very important to me. That actually provides a nice segue into what we're really going to talk about because the Dechima project is an open-ended conversation with specialists, but also with other historians about ways of doing history as much as anything else, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So we should def define it, I suppose. We should go to the Dechima. Can you tell us in literal terms what the Dechima project is, Nick? So it's, uh, the Dechima project is an effort to develop a, a geographic information systems-based map of the 16th century city of Florence working with a 1561 tax census and geo-referencing that data to a 1586 aerial view of the city so that you can go over the city, you bring it up on your computer, you go over the city and you can go household by household and find out who lives in which houses, what, they, what their occupations are, what their families are, um, who lives in different quadrants of the city. This is all information that we tried to bring together. It's been around, but it's never actually been made this accessible. So uh, a database and a map are two essential elements here. Exactly. Can you tell us a bit more about the census then, the Dechma Granducale? Why was such a document deemed necessary? So uh, any government wants to raise more tax revenue and the Decima Granducale is um, brought about by a Florentine government which, want, which wants to raise more tax revenue on the basis of property. And this is why it becomes very interesting for us because it is very spatially located. So the tax assessors went by household by household and in each household then they took down the information on what the assessed value of the house was, what the rental payments were, the number of people living there, the occupations, uh, really, when you spun it all out, you can have uh, up to about 50 different categories of data for each household. It's really quite extraordinary. The level of sophistication, as you're saying, is one of the stunning things, and that's so often the case with Florence. When you go back to Florence, you find things you might have thought originated in your own period have been anticipated, and then there's a le level of sophistication of the administration as well. So, as you said, you've, you and your team have got the documentary record of a city survey, you are creating a database of the information in that census and you're using a map from the same period to show where the things that the census describes took place. We'll be putting a link to that map on our website, by the way, called the Bon Signori map, uh, so people will be able to go and have a look at it. And it's an extraordinary thing to look at. Can you describe the map itself in, in a little detail for us? Stefano Bonsignori was a, a map maker, a cartographer, uh, actually also a monk in uh, 16th century Florence and he uh, he had done a number of different maps and in preparing this he worked from about five different vantage points around the city and uh, then did his uh, did his surveys of the city the map is most accurate on the west end of the city where there's more hills it's least accurate to the east end of the city where he's doing it from a distance and one of the lovely things about the Bonsignori map is that he draws himself at the bottom. 
margin of the map. So you see this man sitting on a hill with a surveyor's uh, compass uh, looking, at the, looking at the city. He was involved in other mapping projects for the, um, for the Medici family, but this is the one that uh, is most accessible to most people. Yeah, so we've got a 16th century version of Google before it's, the cars, exactly. before the cameras. Exactly. So if we go back to the census itself, that is the Decima Granducale. So this is a fascinating and in many ways quintessentially Florentine document, isn't it? And you said it was a census, but I suspect that when Australian listeners imagine a census today, they think of forms of various kinds of data on them, names, addresses, occupations, income, religion, and so on. But the Decima is arranged in a particular way. Looking at the survey record, it's a series of lists which reflects the on-the-ground survey that brought it into, the, into existence in the first place. So tell us a bit about that putting together process. So as near as we can recreate it, there were about four teams of uh, surveyors who went house by house through the city streets. Uh, there were at least two people within each team. The um, the raw notes that they may would have made are ones that we don't have accessible to us. But what we have left then is something that's called the Decima di Cerca, which is in a sense the all of their notes brought together in five volumes. One volume for each quarter of the city and then a fifth volume for the uh, artisans' workshops and the stores of the city. And so the way it's organized is uh, quite literally down the page, household by household, and then each each house uh, numbered by quarter. The, the uh, information is recorded going up one side of the street, down the other. Each corner is clearly marked so you can actually recreate the path of the census takers. Now they may not have actually walked that path, although we have tried to recreate the steps of the, of the record-keeping process. And they're very systematic in that record-keeping. And so you can use that, that uh, guide, you can use these five volumes in order to plot the, uh, the, the nature of the city, to plot the, the richer areas, the poorer areas. You can see uh, where different people of different occupations are living. You can see, as one of, my, uh, one of our research assistants was looking at, that no Florentine would have to walk more than about 100 meters to get bread because the bakers were evenly distributed to the city. So we've been able to do things like that to show how the city actually functions and where people are in the city. And that's been an extraordinary resource for us. And that's all simply based on, on the records that we have there. It's really interesting. You're talking about actual documents. These are manuscript, therefore handwritten documents on actual pages that you can leaf through. But it is a mapping exercise. The more you talk about it, the more it sounds like an itinerary. You get the sense, actually, of reading your way through a guidebook as tourists would today, that this thing is here and we can walk a few paces further and there's a church and so on. So there's action on the ground at every point. You've already anticipated a little bit, I think, the question I want to ask, which is um, why this might be important, uh, the idea that it's dynamic in the sense that you are talking about. How, how is it that it's come to have that aspect to it? We, we aim to create the layer of data there that people can then uh, use in order to follow their own itineraries through it. 
So uh, one thing that we have done as a group is uh, we have also plotted the path of the first artist, artist's guidebook or first artistic guidebook for the city, which is in 1591. It's by a person called Francesco Bocchi, and he goes through uh, and offers five different itineraries for the person who wants to see the artworks of Florence. And he, uh, he literally goes household to household or major household to major household into churches, into, um, into houses, and we have plotted that. Now, anybody else can go and make their own plotting depending on what they might want to follow in the city. And what was important for us in creating this, uh, this, 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 uh, this platform, let's say, is that people could do their own kind of uh, walk through the city and find how Florentines themselves used the city, how, the, how Florentines, in a sense, practiced or exercised through the city, worked through the city, walked through the city, lived in different areas, worked in different areas. And um, the city then as a living, breathing uh, place where people are uh, not simply, um, you know, let's say, uh, not simply wealthy people living in one place or poor people living in another, but people are walking through. They are, they are using the piazzas, they are using the squares, they are crossing the bridges, they are hearing sounds, they are going from one, one gate to another. We wanted to show the city in action. The city is a living organism. And so in a funny way, we've come back to young Terpster reading his alternative narratives, actually spaces of possibility, it seems exactly. to be here. You are listening to How Was It Really? It's just such a detailed and rich document. Um, so it's describing every household in the city. It's a sense I'm getting from, from what you're saying. What kind of overall picture then does it end up giving us in the end? Well, like any census, it's how you take the material out. So there are, let's say, there are almost 60,000 people in the city at that point, rough, just under 10,000 households. One of the things that, uh, that I wanted to study uh, was uh, gender in the city. And so one of the things that we can find is that 20% uh, of the households in Florence at that time are, are led by widows. And we can see that that's spatially diffused through the entire city. Uh, the other thing I was trying to do in relation to this was show uh, where, uh, where widow, uh, widows working in the textile industry in particular worked. And so we, we were able to show that there were four different areas of the city where they were concentrated. And these are the kinds of materials that we can pull out. Another thing that I'm working on with, uh, with another colleague right now is how much, of the, how much of the surface of the city, how much of the land of the city, how many of the buildings of the city were owned by private people and how many were owned by institutions or, or religious institutions in particular. And again, it's about 20%. So we're able to show who owns what parts of the city, what activities are taking place. Uh, we're able to show, in a sense, the socioeconomic breakdown of the city. We're able to show uh, richer areas, poorer areas, uh, the occupational uh, areas of the city. And these are things which I think allow us to give, again, a much richer sense of, the, uh, of, of Florence as a living, breathing place. Not just by following individual stories, because that's, again, part of the, the narrative element that we were looking at before, but to place individual stories within the context of the entire city. And I think that's when one of the real uh, benefits that we've been able to do. You've talked about the extraordinary detail um, 
that you come across and which you can compile. And you're interested in all of it. Uh, in fact, what strikes me about this is how the mapping exercise is perhaps the only way to bring much of this kind of insight into view. You would lose a lot of the insights you've just been summarising were you to do this in a conventional kind of way. It's the map that makes it visible in a literal sense, actually, not just a metaphorical sense. There are so many areas, or sorry, many directions in which you could follow these leads. We can't possibly talk about them all. You talked about widows, and gender is one of the things at the forefront of your inquiry, and it's a long-term interest of yours. It, it makes itself felt in all sorts of ways, longitudinally throughout your work, I think. One of the things I'd like to fix on is, or at least we've got, that we, I'd like to discuss today in brief, is the key aim of the Duke, this is Cosimo I, who's in charge of all of this at the time, uh, one of his key aims, you said, was to reorganise what you referred to as the geography of prostitution in Florence, so another gender issue here. Can you tell us why Cosimo was concerned to do this? Why did he want to reorganise geographically the prostitution trade in Florence, and what was he trying to achieve? I think Cosimo is trying to balance the interests of, let's say, two different groups of women. One, are, one group is the prostitutes, who are recognized as a prostitution, who, as, and as a, as a, or who are recognized as an occupation. And uh, it's an occupation which serves a certain segment of society, which uh, at the time uh, was considered very necessary, very important. You had to have some kind of availability for, uh, for sex for young male workers because uh, otherwise they might move into other areas of activity, either uh, illegitimate, uh, what was considered illegitimate sexual activity, uh, either uh, heterosexual or homosexual. And so pretty much every city at that time thought that prostitution was, uh, was an important social good. But there were elements about prostitution which were seen as um, morally questionable, obviously, but also then in some way um, disruptive. And what you find in the 14th century is that Florentine authorities at that point had tried to keep prostitutes out of the city entirely. In the early 15th century, they, they do a 180 degree turn and they bring prostitutes into the center of the city in a single city, city brothel. 16th century, there's a feeling that prostitutes have to be diffused more throughout the city. The brothel remains in the center of the city, but the Duke also sets out 18 streets where prostitutes can, can work. And he's trying to make sure that prostitution then is available in a broader area to all workers in the city. Most of the, most of the streets for prostitution are in the periphery of the city where poorer people lived, where more, a lot of, more of the industrial activity took place. The problem is that prostitution attracts all sorts of other activity, crime, uh, music, singing, caterwauling, uh, arguing. And th so this is where his other concern comes in. He has to worry about those people who are going to be bothered by those noises. And the concern that he feels most strongly is a concern for the young women who are being put into convents. This is a time in Florentine history where many wealthy families are deciding that it's only possible for one of their daughters to marry because the cost of giving a dowry is very high or they, 
they decide that the cost of giving a dowry is very high. So what they do is allow only one daughter to marry, the other daughters go into convents. So at this point, the Florentine convent population is expanding rapidly. More daughters of upper-class families are being sent into these places. And so convent uh, Cosimo is concerned not just with the prostitutes, but also with these well-off young women who are locked up in convents, who cannot, cannot leave their convents, and so who will have to live with that sound and that, that problem or those difficulties, uh, they'll have to face that day by day. So he wants to make sure that prostitutes and, and nuns remain at a certain distance from each other. Thanks, Nick. You've, you've brought us to our key question. So how close were prostitutes allowed to get to nuns and convents in 16th century Florence? 200 feet. You can be that precise. Well, the measure they use is called a braccia, which is an arm, and it was 100 braccia, an arm is about two feet. So the, this is what the law stipulated. Now, if you look at the 18 streets they set out, you can see that actually most of them bypass convents, at least bypass most convents. So they were being as careful as they could be in setting out the law, in setting out the streets, in trying to avoid convents. Of course, in practice, none of that works out quite as uh, clearly and cleanly as they wanted it to. But what we could tell is that it was uh, definitely a, a clear aim, and they did prosecute. They prosecuted people for making noise. So the chief, uh, the chief um, magistracy that was in charge of, of uh, enforcing the laws on prostitution uh, would take people to court, uh, would fine people for making a lot of noise. And it's actually one of the main, uh, one of the main activities that it undertakes. And you've got some very colourful examples of this kind of misbehaviour, haven't you? We do indeed. We do indeed. Of, uh, of uh, this one story in particular of a, of a man who comes in and is very angry at a prostitute. We don't know whether he is the, a client, could even be a husband, uh, possibly a, um, a pimp. And uh, they start fighting, and he starts throwing things out the window onto the street, and this starts to attract all sorts of act, uh, all sorts of uh, attention, and it gives him a big fine. But we, uh, according to the uh, records, he throws out uh, what, what at the time of the time, uh, 800 ducats worth of material, and that's an awful lot of stuff. So whatever this business is, it's successful. It's successful. And wow. And this wasn't just a minor uh, domestic dispute. This was, this was a big time thing. So what you've got is traffic management and a morals campaign and a noise abatement kind of program as, as well. Because Florence is clearly a very raucous place. It's not just about high art. There's obviously a great deal of um, what we would call colorful popular life in the streets going on. Um, and this is only one aspect of the enormous panoply of potential avenues that this, this project is, is following up. It's a really extraordinary sort of project, I think. One of the other things about it, uh, what they were concerned about was the nuisance involved with prostitution. So the interesting thing is that Cosimo and his two sons, Ferdinando and Francesco, who succeeded him, didn't seem to be that terribly worried about the immorality of it. It was really more the nuisance factor. 
And their assumption, and the assumption of the magistrates, was that when a woman had paid for her license, she was, she was um, entitled to protection as well. So when you look into the uh, prosecution records of the magistracy, there are some prosecutions of women for um, undertaking prostitution without a license, but there are actually many more prosecutions of people who were assaulting prostitutes, people who were making too much noise, people who were annoying prostitutes, people who were shortchanging prostitutes. So the, the, the government at the time felt that since people had paid for a license, since these prostitutes had paid for a license, they were entitled to a certain degree of civil service public protection. The, the Morals Campaign comes in about 100 years later with a later Medici Duke who decides that, uh, that prostitutes are committing adultery and so they, they should be prosecuted on those grounds. But that's a later 17th century campaign. The 16th century Dukes were actually much more, um, well, I, I wouldn't say indifferent to that, but again, they saw prostitution as what in the time would have been called a necessary evil. And so they didn't necessarily approve of it, but it was necessary, and so then it had to be protected. And the people who were offering that service also had to be protected. I think that's a very interesting thing for us to look at now. And that's a window, if you like, a keyhole, I suppose, on a, a darker reality, if we were to pursue that kind of marginal work performed by women in mm -hmm. the service of the male gender, we'd be going into some um, more challenging yes. material and so Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Okay. In the meantime, we'll perhaps stop with the civil disturbances. And thank you very much for coming and talking to us, Nick. It's just been a delight having you here again, and we look forward to your return visits and to talking to, to you again in the future. I look forward to it as well. I, uh, thanks very much for the conversation, and thanks for the opportunity to say more about Detriment. I hope that uh, next time, by next time, we'll have even more material on the map and online and available for people to use. We look forward to checking in. And remember that you can download this episode of How Was It Really from our website, where you will find also information about Nick Terpstra's publications, links to the articles we've been discussing, and also, of course, a link to the Dechima website, where you can spend hours playing with the mapping tool and walking along Florence's 16th century streets. See you next time. That's how it was in Florence in the 16th century. See you all soon. How is it really is written, recorded and produced by the Department of History at the University of Sydney. Mm -hmm.